This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything that Richard and I have been up to on the 26th of February, a Monday morning, broadcasting live from Expo City, Dubai. And that includes having a look at what is happening down here in terms of creating a space to work, live and play. We've been speaking to Marjan Faradouni, a woman we've been speaking to for a decade about legacy plans for Expo City Dubai. She's now Chief Education, Culture and CHRO, so Human Resources Officer down here. And if you can hear behind me the chatter of little voices, that's because the education part is absolutely working. We are surrounded by school children. We've also been speaking to some adults this morning, having a look at the removal of the UAE off the FATF grey list and what it means for investment, for banking and the like. We've been speaking to economists, we've been speaking to lawyers uh, and we've been speaking to a property expert as well, Jean Jahinki, the COO of Property Monitor, about what it might mean for institutional investment into the UAE. Plus, breaking news this morning, we've had Abu Dhabi's Mabadala signing up with Goldman Sachs to invest a billion dollars into Asia. And we've been talking Singapore. I'm less than 24 hours off a flight. We've been talking about the Singapore economy, which is set to get the Taylor Swift effect. Let's look in more detail at our top business story this morning, um, and that is reaction to the UAE being taken off the FATF grey list. We've been speaking to lawyers, to property experts, to economists, and to trade advisors this morning uh, to find out what it could mean in practice for us on the ground. Let's put it in context first. Kamal Jabba is a partner, looks at banking and finance for Keystone Law. He explained to us what the actual decision means and how it works. So the Financial Action Task Force, um, or FATF as it is known, is a Paris-based intergovernmental organization that develops and promotes policies to combat money laundering and terrorism financing on a global scale. The reason it's an important body is because it sets international standards to prevent illegal activities and uh, thereby safeguard the financial system. We were placed on the increased monitoring list or the grey list, as it is known, in March of 2022 for gaps in our money laundering regime. Grey listings can adversely impact the country. They reduce investor confidence. uh, They increase scrutiny of international financial transactions and a whole host of other things which are not very good for business. Uh, Fortunately, we weathered that. The good news is that the UAE managed to implement comprehensive reforms and get off this list within a period of only two years, which should further boost our standing and financial credibility. Now, Kamal mentioned there that being on a grey list can impact the ability to attract FDI. Rich, you were looking at UNCTAD listings of Greenfield FDI from last year. Oh, we didn't do too badly despite that. We did not, no. So 2022 March, we went on the grey list and there was a lot of, I wouldn't say there was doom and gloom, but media, including ourselves, said, oh, that's not great. No one wants to be on a grey list. Is this going to deter foreign investment? Well, we had the answer a few weeks ago when the United Nations UNCTAD report came out on foreign direct investment, a resounding no. Last year, it says, was a weak year for greenfield foreign direct investment, but the UAE saw a 28% increase 
in Greenfield Foreign Direct Investment. 2023. What was the Asian average? Two. Two uh, percent in West Asia. FDI remained stable at plus two percent. Uh, but for the UAE, it was up 28%. We were second in the world behind the United States. United States, world's biggest economy, population 400 million. UAE, small, 10 million people. Second, in absolute terms, not in growth rates, in absolute terms. So if that's what we did with the brakes on, what's going to happen now? Yeah, and that's one of the questions we've put to Katija Hack, Chief Economist at Emirates NBD, saying, coming off the list, given the growth that has occurred in investment, is this really a big deal? Being on the FATF grey list led to increased compliance regulations and scrutiny on flows of funds, particularly for international banks. It may have made it harder for UAE residents and firms to hold accounts abroad and also to transfer funds internationally. A report from the IMF in 2021 showed that being on the grey list has typically led to statistically significant reductions in capital flows for those countries. So coming off the grey list should make it easier and hopefully cheaper to move money internationally and should also boost investment and trade over the long term. All right, well, let's get one trade advisor's take on what that could look like. Joe Hepworth is the director of OCO Middle East. They help a lot of companies do business with each other from one country to another, particularly between the UAE and Great Britain. This is why he thinks it's a big deal. The UAE's coming off the fat of grey list is enormously positive for businesses here and internationally and prospective international investors. It, it in effect removes a, a, a major asterisk that was sitting there against the UAE. Um, and when you consider that coming off the list isn't a matter of running the clock down like a sin bin, it, it's, you only can come off the list by enacting major improvements and, and, and proving that. So it, it, it demonstrates and it's evidence that the UAE really has got now leading leading standards and methodologies on anti-money laundering and, and financial regulations. Right. So in practice, what could that mean, the, the practical impact on FDI and trade? From an international investor's perspective, I mean, clearly the UAE hasn't been doing too badly from an FDI perspective in, in the last few years. But I think the grey list was always a bit of a yeah, but. What about the UAE? Yeah, but. It's taken that away. I mean, you might have seen over the weekend Jim Ratcliffe, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, talking about Ineos's, his regrets, actually, that Ineos has, has their planned factory in Belgium um, has run into significant difficulties, regulatory difficulties. And it just goes to show different subject, but it shows that FDI and trade, it's a bit of a cliche, but flow where there's the least impediments. Um, and be that regulatory issues. But if, you know, if you've got a board or your shareholders saying, why are you doing business in the UAE? You know, why, is it, it, why are we doing business in a place that's on a grey list? That's an impediment. So taking the UAE coming off that list will be a further fillet to FDI. Well, one of the areas that we've looked at, particularly with that, is property. Um, a lot of institutional money, pension funds, etc. look um, at property as investment. They're looking for safe investments. So we asked Joja Hinky, the CEO of Property Monitor, whether or not coming off the grey list could make a difference for international institutional investment into our property market here. So I mean, that's what we really want to see is that institutional capital, those pension funds and the like coming into the market. I unfortunately don't think that removal from the grey list is going to have a huge impact, not in the near term anyway. You have to look at what those funds want to invest in. They want to invest in normally single owner buildings, right? typically commercial in nature, so offer small, those retail spaces. 
what do we have here that you can invest in? Not a lot. Most of those prime buildings are either owned by, they're in GCC only areas, leasehold areas. They're owned by prominent families that are in a portfolio where there's no intention to remove that from the portfolio. So it's going to be hard because there might be the, uh, that being removal from there and taking down those barriers to entry, but what they want to buy just doesn't exist in the market. Jean Jahnke, CEO of Property Monitor. We're going to get more from him a little bit later on as well. Cavendish Maxwell and Property Monitor have just come out with their numbers for January, setting the scene for what 2024 already looks like for the property market. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Yeah, where we are having a look at what's being done to create a bigger residential community, bigger working community with a certain flavour here down at Expo City, Dubai. We are speaking to one woman who has been involved in creating the future here um, since, I think, before there was Ten a space. Years. <laughs> yes, even in the ground. Marjan Faraduni is Chief Education, Culture and Human Resources Officer here at Expo City Dubai. It's lovely to see you again. Good to see you, Brandy. Welcome to Expo. Welcome to Terra. Thank you. And we have been chatting to you about what Expo will do next since before there actually was an Expo. How close is what you're doing now when we look at what the the legacy plans were before Expo even opened its gates? Well, it's really exciting to see how the legacy or future plans have been progressing since we closed our doors um, for the Expo event. So we're continuing to be the city that we promised to be, to uh, where people work here, uh, play here, but also hopefully live very soon here. Um, so we're in progress and uh, we've been uh, working along since the past two years, welcoming lots of uh, events, work, uh, welcoming a lot of visitors. We have seven attractions on site. We're going to open a new one very soon. So we've been busy, Brandy. <laughs> I don't doubt that you've been busy. Let's look at some of the opportunities and challenges that come with that. Yeah. Because you're building a culture. And most cities evolve organically, don't they, over yes. hundreds of, of years. How do you create deliberately a culture and what kind of things do you weigh up? So in our uh, case, Brandy, we're lucky because we created a very strong culture during the expo and we're really taking this forward. And this culture is really centered ar around people, uh, around inspiring people, around getting them to discover new things. So with, the, for example, the attractions that we have, like Terra, where we are today, it's about continuing on the topics that we always believed were important around sustainability, environment, human progress, culture, um, the history of the Arab people. Um, so we, we had a really great uh, starting and basis uh, that we worked from, from the expo, and we're continuing to build on that. And we build on that also through the events that we have. Um, so, for example, we've hosted a light festival, which is, was very cultural, uh, promoted a lot of UAE-based um, uh, artists. In, uh, in a week, we'll be hosting the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum, which really takes forward our whole commitment to sustainability and continuing that discussions with stakeholders from around the world. How do you keep the legacy pavilions themselves, and we're sitting in one yes. now, of course, the sustainability pavilion, um, Terra, a huge hit 
during Expo. But how do you keep it fresh so that people who visited here during Expo don't think, yeah, right, been it, seen it? So one thing is that is really important to note is the content of these pavilions are timeless. So they, they continue to be refreshed in terms of the type of content it produces with regards to environment, history, etc. But it's also kept fresh by the type of events that we uh, welcome around in these pavilions. We hosted the Lego Master uh, <laughs> competition yesterday, for example, and we continue to host uh, events in schools. Like we have schools coming in in, in the next half an hour. Uh, we have workshops. Um, um, so that's how we keep it fresh from the type of additional complementary events that uh, meet the, uh, the themes of the pavilions and the, the exhibitions that we have here. The events is an interesting one because Richard and yeah. I were discussing earlier. I mean, some of the events that you've been hosting are massive. I yeah. mean, COP, obviously, but also the Untold Festival yeah. the other weekend. As you become more of a residential area yeah. um, and as you become more of a workplace, people need to get in and out. They have routines. Yeah. They have schedules. How do you make sure that when putting on those massive events, particularly something like COP in which security is a, is a huge yeah. issue, that you're not impacting adversely those who are living and working here? Yeah. That's an excellent question, Brandy. And it's very important to note that we're going through a very diligent process of looking at our master plan to precisely make sure that we are living in balance with the events and people who work here and people who um, will actually live here. Um, so we're learning a lot um, and we do realize that we are transitioning as a site. So we're looking at things like where particular venues are going to be, how are they going to be uh, not impeding visitors um, or, or people who live coming in, looking at parking um, opportunities, but also seeing how we could really make this uh, place invite visitors but at the same time be a place to work and um, work and live and we've experienced it with cops so we do have people who've worked here so really uh, working very closely with the companies who are set up here making sure that they are not impacted as much with these big events so um, so it's really about how we are continuing to plan and and really something key that we do here at Expo is we we learn a lot from our experiences and we do realize the different stakeholders that we need to be making sure that they're happy Okay, well, yeah. Untold, um, Rich was saying, didn't make headlines for all the right reasons in that people were, were happy with the in and out. The, the traffic yes. flow absolutely worked. And that's where you want people almost not to be talking about you, uh, to be not talking about the logistics. What are you taking from that in terms of how big this area yeah. could be for future big entertainment events? So, I mean, even after uh, hosting Expo, our, one of our biggest events was actually COP, as you noted, in, in November, December. But um, uh, we also realized that this place is fantastic to host uh, festivals. And Untold it made the headlines for the right reasons, because people actually enjoyed themselves. And I heard it was one of the best uh, Untold festivals that happened um, uh, since its, its inception. So that was great news for us. And, and this really solidifies our plans to become a place of events that can host these kind of festivals. Um, and as you know, if you're familiar with Expo City Dubai, we've been having the winter festivals, we've been having the Hay Ramadan festival, we're hosting it again uh, for our second edition Hay Ramadan uh, th uh, uh, in the next couple of weeks. So we are ready to host these events. Um, and because our site is also built in a way that allows us to have these kind of events and allows to have that healthy separation between the different types of people who 
work here, live here, and play here. How big could it get? I mean, the biggest traveling circus on the planet at the moment is the Taylor Swift concert. Could we get that <laughs> big? I can't say, but you never know, <laughs> is what I will stop at. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what else will we see coming out from, from Expo City Dubai? We've got one minute left with you in the next year. What kind of headlines can we expect to come from you? Um, so I mentioned Tay Ramadan is coming uh, up. I mentioned a very important event, the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum, which is really solidifies our position as a place to host environment-related conferences. We also are celebrating International Women's Day, and with that, you will get to see our new plans for uh, the women's pavilion that we have. We are also um, uh, going to be launching a bit more of our real estate project, so um, stay tuned for that. We've recently had our launch for Sky Residence and Mangrove Residence and our, and, and our villas and townhouses. So there's more of that happening uh, this year and, and really exciting on the 29th of February, we have the AI Film Festival uh, celebration uh, that's the first of its kind happening. A diverse lineup indeed. Marjan yes. Faradouni is the Chief Education, Cultural and Human Resources Officer here at Expo City Dubai. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Brandy. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. The man behind the numbers in one of our headlines this morning is indeed sitting next to me. We've got the January report, first report of the new year coming out from the guys at Property Monitor and Cavendish Maxwell. Jean Jahenki is the COO of Property Monitor. He's also the Director of Market Intelligence and Research for Cavendish Maxwell. In short, he is the numbers guy. Morning, Jean. Morning. So, 2024 opening with a few new records. Yeah, did it open in style. It was a cracker, right? It opened with the highest number of sales ever for a January. And that's after last year being the highest ever January sales. So we had about 11,600 transactions. And what's really been driving this has been the off-plan market. Uh, we've seen that significant shift back from when we had COVID lockdown times come and things revert and sort of go in the favor of completed existing homes to off-plan slowly gaining market share about 18 months ago to now being the clear dominant player in the market at about a 60-40 split. Okay, we're going to get into the off-plan numbers in just a second, uh, but the one well, it depends which side of the transaction you're sitting. Um, the one uh, cloud may be on the horizon. The lowest price appreciation in 18 months. What are you reading into that? So to be expected, we saw prices moderate throughout the year. Last year, there was massive growth, 16.4%, decade high in annual growth. And then we, but we saw that at a very moderated pace and start to slow down. What started to keep it slowing down is we've got that completed those existing homes, the villa and townhouses that ran away the fastest and appreciated in price, they've really leveled out or topped out with very, very modest appreciation now, sale after sale. Apartments in the ready space, a little bit more room, but again, it's the off-plan that's driving it. Whereas before we saw some uh, larger month-on-month gains in off-plan, they were driven by projects being launched in, say, very well-established communities with very few launches in the last five years. Then you had a launch come probably being 25% higher than the previous sales, so you saw some bumps there. Now you've got new launches happening in those communities where it's about the same price per square foot as previous launches, say, six or eight months ago. Is it a sign of health that slowing price appreciation? Slow is good. Slow is steady. Slow is realistic. Um, we don't want to see things run away. When we run away, we go towards that dreaded bubble territory, which you never know when that's going to pop. Are we in one now? Most of the signs say that we're not. We're in a more mature market that's appreciating slowly. We're not seeing a lot of speculation. We're seeing realistic month-on-month price gains, but we are seeing record 
severely record number of transactions month on month. So that one of the biggest questions is how long can that maintain? How long are we going to have buyers that are going to take that, that uptake? And then ultimately, three, four, five years down the track, are we going to have the people to fill those properties when they come to market? What do you think? I think it's going to be tight. Um, we talked about this last month, uh, population growth, just over 100,000, average household size of four, right? We've got probably this year 40, 50,000 units coming on and it just getting more and more after that. We may be in a position where there is going to be excess supply three to four years from now delivering into the market. So you're going to see prices definitely come down at that point should that happen. What does that mean for those who have bought off plan but aren't planning to hold on to it? If you bought off plan and aren't planning to hold on to it for when that project completed, completes, you took a risky bet. And that's what it is, right? If you're going to do that, if you're buying for end use, if you're buying to have that as be a rental property over the long term, you mitigate a lot of that risk. But if you're buying more speculative to make quick money during a construction cycle, you may get held with a hot potato. Okay, let's talk about those off-plan sales because one of the things that you do say in this report is that you're seeing more diversity in what's being launched now. Yeah, so what we saw last year, the beginning of last year, was heavily, heavily shifted towards the ultra luxury, luxury market and the high end. So those upper ends of the market on a, on a volume and a value basis. Um, throughout sort of the latter part of the year, we saw that shift towards the high and the mid market. So down from that very top end into that, that mid market section, which is good. But we've also seen several more developers come on. So the guys that were launching in that ultra high price point, they don't launch 30 projects. They launch two or three of them. In that mass market, in the mid market, we're seeing more of those developers in Arjan, um, Alpha John, Marjan, all the Johns, um, in Dubai Land Residence Complex, um, and then in sort of Falcon City of Wonders, you're going to start to see a few as well. In that area, it's almost a game of fill in the blanks now. One of the things that this report also notes is some really big land sales, some of them not a million miles from here. What does that herald? Yeah, so there have been significant amount of land sales sp around this area. So we're talking the back of Dubai South along 611, um, where you saw Ema recently launched the Oasis. Across from that, on both sides, you've got big plots there where the Arabian Water Canal was originally going to be. Um, you had a couple of huge sales this month in DIP, in DIP2 on the back side of that. These are all prime for master communities to come in. That is what you are going to see. You're going to see more master communities come in along that 611 corridor out towards where we are now in Dubai South. And then eventually you're going to see that swing back around up to Palm Jebel Ali. How big could these master communities be? Are we talking another sort of Damak Hills? Are we yeah. talking another Springs? We're, we're talking another Ranches, Damak Hills, Oasis. These are big, big tracts of land. Big master communities that are going to come in. You're probably going to see a mix of single family homes as well as multifamily apartment buildings. But I think what's really lacking, and there's only a few people that can do this, is through master developments, is that single family market. Villas and townhouses that are drastically undersupplied. Because if we look at what's largely driven the, the mortgage market in this report, as well as those off-plan sales, it has been apartments, hasn't it? It has been apartments. But if it, it's hard for it not to be, given just the makeup of, of Dubai's property market. It's 75 to 80% at times apartments, and the rest being single-family homes and resi. So that balance seeing the mortgage market leaning towards apartments is, is almost natural. Where we saw the biggest growth in mortgages over the last couple of years was that single-family, primarily the villa market. But now apartments have come back in full swing. Well, while we've still got you, Jean, we've got a few minutes left with you. The big news of this weekend, the UAE off the grey list. What could it mean for institutional money coming into our property sector? I mean, that's what we really want to see is that institutional capital, those pension funds and the like coming into the market. 
I unfortunately don't think that removal from the gray list is going to have a huge impact, not in the near term anyway. You have to look at what those funds want to invest in. They want to invest in normally single owner buildings, right? typically commercial in nature, so office, mall, those retail spaces. What do we have here that you can invest in? Not a lot. Most of those prime buildings are either owned by, they're in GCC only areas, leasehold areas. They're owned by prominent families that are in a portfolio where there's no intention to remove that from the portfolio. So it's going to be hard because there might be the, uh, that being removal from there and taking down those barriers to entry, but what they want to buy just doesn't exist in the market. So it's not a case of lack of willingness from, from funds to invest. It's not being able to find the commercial property to exactly. invest in. Exactly. Look, Dubai has done a great job with transparency and other things to appeal to FDI and to institutional money. But what they're looking for not, isn't necessarily what's available on the market. So unlikely to have an impact on price then. I mean, we've been speaking to Ben Barg to others about what's happening in the office space at the moment in terms of prices. Yeah, not going to have much of an impact unless we see any of those, and they don't typically do this, get into the development space and be more product to market, but that's not what they do. And joining us this morning to talk through those January numbers and that slowdown in price appreciation, the slowest rate of appreciation in January in a year and a half, Shanta Hinky, the COO of Property Monitor and the Director of Market Intelligence and Research for Cavendish Maxwell. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, let's start with Asia. A bit of breaking news right now. Goldman Sachs striking a $1 billion private credit deal with Mabadala, the Abu Dhabi Wealth Fund. Bloomberg reporting this one in the past few minutes. Goldman Sachs clinching that deal. They're going to scour Asia for more private credit deals. Now, the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund and the Asset Management Division of Goldman Sachs have struck up a partnership. They're going to invest alongside each other throughout Asia Pacific. No particular country, just the entire region. But India is one area that they've targeted and said there's a lot going on here. And in fact, it's not the first time that Mabadala has done this. Or indeed, Goldman Sachs have done this. Goldman Sachs has also partnered with the Canadian Pension Fund as well to do it. And the point is, this quite a niche area of finance, private sector credit, private sector debt, underinvested in recently, but now investors are waking up to the fact that there's potential there, partly because of higher interest rates. It makes the yields more attractive. Goldman Sachs want a bit of the action, as do Mabadala. So that's uh, broken this morning on The Wise. And staying in Asia, Brandy Scott, big focus on Asia this morning and indeed last week, because you have returned within the past 24 hours from Singapore, where you've partly been, mainly been on vacation, but being the Girl Scout you are, couldn't resist taking the pulse of the Singapore economy. What news from the Straits? <laughs> it's what you do, isn't it? It's bred into you. Have a chat with the taxi driver, have a chat with people in queues when you're getting your coffee to find out how people are feeling on the ground. Well, your grab driver in this case, for it is uh, Singapore. Um, it's... Do you know what? I had a lot of discussions that could have been Dubai discussions because they were about rising rents over the last couple of years. Discussions, by the way, that I had had with former Singapore experts, expats even, who had moved here um, because the rise in rents in Singapore, I think I'm right in saying last year, was, was higher than Dubai and we were pretty far up the global leaderboard on that one. Uh, so people talking about 
the cost of food rising, the cost of going out, um, talking about how they're reining in on things like staycations, reining in uh, on things like entertainment. Rents have started to come off a little bit, so they are softening. Um, and I've got friends who have, have moved over there recently who've said, you know, they're coming down, but they are not where they were in any way, shape or form pre-pandemic. If we look at what the Singapore economy is doing, recent numbers out show that the economy grew just over 1% last year they're forecasting only slightly higher for this year but they are about to get an earth-shaking economic boom uh, to get us in the mood producer milani back at our media city headquarters she's being dj this morning producer milani can we have a bit of taylor swift And that's because Taylor is coming to Singapore not without controversy. She is, and I'm not exaggerating, sparking a diplomatic incident. <laughs> yeah, I swear, anywhere she goes, there is a new business angle. Uh, Sydney and Melbourne um, have been the spotlight for Taylor Swift in the last week, um, where there's been a shortage of friendship bracelet-making supplies. Uh, it is a thing for swapping at Taylor Swift concerts. Um, Singapore, though, as you say, has been in the headlines for Taylor Swiftiness, um, and that is because the Thai Prime Minister told a business forum uh, a couple of days ago that Singapore, which is to get six, I think six Taylor Swift concerts in March, um, had basically given a, a bit of a, a sweetener to Swift in order to get exclusivity, to be Taylor Swift's only show in Southeast Asia. She has uh, notably performed in Tokyo in Japan because diplomatically, um, I think the Japanese embassy came out in the whole big will she or will she not make the Super Bowl um, question. So Singapore's got the only Southeast Asian concerts, six sold out shows in early March. That's not just going to be Singaporean expats and residents. That's going to be people flying in from everywhere. Um, the Thai Prime Minister saying that he had been told somewhere between two and three million dollars um, was what um, had been paid to Swift to do that. Singapore has since come out and said, yes, we did give her a grant. They haven't said how much. They also haven't commented on whether or not it was in exchange for exclusivity, but have released a statement pointing out the economic benefits of having Swift in town and saying it's a, an economic move. I, they've invested two to three million dollars. There's a return on that investment and they're seeing that return on investment. And countries do this you know, the world over, don't they? And they've been doing it for 100 years or more. You host a major event, whether it's a major sporting event, whether it's a major cultural music event, and that brings in the punters. And there are models for analysing the economic impact. I know the, the Lit Fest here in Dubai does it on a, probably not every year, but every now and then they bring in experts and say, what is the direct and indirect impact on the city of having a literature festival and so on and so yeah, forth. Yeah, so does the Melbourne Cup. Yeah, exactly. It, there, there's a methodology now for doing it. Singapore is well-versed in these techniques and having Taylor, two, three million dollars to have her for a couple of weeks in town, a small price to pay. And yeah, I'm sure the owners of Hawker Stands and the retailers of Torrey Birch Espadrilles on Orchard Road will be delighted to have them. Your memory's good. 
you this is what you do in Singapore. You go to Orchard Road, you empty Tory Birch, you come back with new espadrilles. You're not wearing them today. I can see, I can see under the desk here at our pop-up studio in Expo City, Dubai. Viewers on Dubai One Television cannot, and certainly people on radio can't, but you're not wearing new Tory Birch espadrilles. Is that because rain... Not weird in the slightest, Richard. Is that because rain was forecast this morning and you thought they were inappropriate? Oh, they might, shopping might have been head. Go on, what did you, what did, you know what you got me? Okay, my friend went to Singapore and all she got me was a bag of chocolate. So I've got, if you watch it on telly, I'm holding it up now. It's a, and I'm not, it's not a brand endorsement, a <laughs> bag of Cadbury's Dairy Milk bunnies. Um, what else did you come back with? Uh, I may have come back with several pencil skirts. Oh, good. Um, I also came back with a bag of books, actually. I bought an awful lot of Australian fiction. And you were there for a book launch? I was indeed. Uh, Renee McGowan, the regional boss based here in Dubai of Marsh McLennan, um, launched a leadership book. She's got a Singaporean publisher. Lovely to see someone from here in Dubai on the international publishing stage, particularly for non-fiction. As she pointed out during her launch, um, a very small percentage of business books are actually written by women, probably because a very small percentage of CEOs are women. Um, and she has bucked both of those trends. So we're going to claim her as a local success story. She's been here for over a year. She's one of ours. Uh, it was great to see. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.